The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament declares God's handiwork. Let us worship the Lord our God. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless God's name. Tell of God's salvation from day to day. Declare God's glory among the nations, God's marvelous works among all the peoples. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, from the beginning you have not waited for an invitation, but rather out of an outpouring of your own love. You made us and all things and pledged yourself to us as our rescue and our God. When we had fled from you and forgotten you, again you did not wait for our invitation, but rather you came to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Once more you pledged yourself to us and poured out your love for us, our rescue, and our God. So even now in Holy Spirit, you do not wait for our invitation, but rather you come to us and invite us to join with you in your ongoing rescue of the world for the sake of your Son, our Lord. Therefore we know you to be the one who comes without our calling, who gives to us according to our unspoken need, who yet ever invites us to reclaim the freedom granted to all your children and call upon you as our God and our rescue. And therefore we worship you and praise you and adore you through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. 
Grace to you and peace, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both everyone gathered here in our sanctuary and also everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to join together in the house of the Lord, and because it is in God's house that we have met, that means there is a place here for absolutely everyone. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome at the First Presbyterian Church. I'd be very grateful if each of you would sign the friendship pads, which you'll find on your pew. Sign it. If there's anyone else on your pew, send it down and back again that we might have the advantage of each other's names. But please sign it even if you are the only one on your pew, because that is our means of contact tracing in the event that we need to inform you of anything. So please do that. We'd also be delighted if everyone would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall. Uh, that hall is just out this door to my right, down a short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity for us to engage with one another more deeply as a family of faith. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin. The first is to note that our TNTs are going on a hike and they're starting a new book study, not necessarily in that order. So if you would like to know more about either of those, you'll find an announcement about that in the bulletin and Annie LeCluse would love to hear from you if you'd like to go on the hike or if you'd like to participate in the book study. I'd like to note as well that on July 31st, back by popular demand, is our Hymn Sing Sunday, and that will be a singing of hymns in lieu of the sermon that day, followed by an ice cream social in Old Buttonwood Hall. And contrary to what I told you last week at our staff meeting on Monday, Andrew did say he would love to know ahead of time what hymns you would like to sing so that we can put them into a booklet to make it easier. So kindly do email Andrew through the church website or the church office in order that he can receive those hymn requests and we'll leave a little space for some spontaneity at the end. There'll be a, a brief call-out period where you can attempt to stump Andrew, but, but not a long call-out period for that. I'm also delighted that we anticipate that on that Sunday we will have just one service that our celebration families will attend with us here in the sanctuary. So that is an opportunity for both of our worshiping bodies to worship at one time, and that does mean there will be a great deal more children present, and they will bring their instruments with them, and it will be a joyful noise, and I look forward to having our congregation all together in one place for this unique Sunday. So please do plan to, to be here that day and to welcome our celebration families into worship with us here in the 11 o'clock service in the sanctuary, and we'll have a wonderful time. With all of these things noted, let us now continue our worship with our confession of sin. Will you join me in prayer? Holy God, we confess that we have not lived up to your grace. We have been the recipients, but have not shared we have been forgiven, but nurse grudges. We have been loved, but harbor enmity. Forgive our sin, O Lord, and make us clean, and transform our hearts by your grace, that you may lead us in the way you would have us go. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. these words of assurance from the prophet Isaiah. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In sudden anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but now I have pitied you with a love that never fails. People of the good news, believe the good news. Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. 
Our first lesson this morning is taken from Paul's letter to, to the Colossians, the first chapter beginning at the 15th verse. He writes about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him all things in heaven and on earth were created, both visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Here ends the first lesson. gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, the 10th chapter beginning at the 38th verse. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by all her many tasks, and so she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, but there is only one thing needful. Mary has chosen the better part which shall not be taken away from her. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our final lesson is taken from the book of Genesis, from the 18th chapter and the 21st chapter. Uh, the Revised Common Lectionary, which is the means by which the majority of our scripture lessons are selected, really, 99% of the time, occasionally does something that is inexplicable to me. And this week it has done one of those things again. It tells a story about Abraham and Sarah uh, being predicted to have a child, but it entirely leaves Sarah out of the story. Arguably, she has the more important role, so I have put her back into the story in these readings, so they'll be a little bit extended over what the Revised Common Lectionary would have proposed. Listen for the word of God as it comes to us from the book of Genesis. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mom, and he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour kneaded and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife Sarah? He said, There, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Sarah and Abraham were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. 
So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old, and after my husband is old, shall I be fruitful? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, Yes, you did laugh. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son, whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In Bridget Jones's baby, a very pregnant Bridget attempts to work her way through the particularities of expecting a child with one notorious plot development that I will not spoil this morning. And honestly, it's a great, fun summer movie. But one part that struck me as I careen relentlessly into my late 40s is that Bridget's pregnancy at the age of 43 is referred to repeatedly in the movie as a geriatric pregnancy. Now, I am not sure exactly what is the right age to begin referring to something as geriatric, but I am quite certain that it is at least a year older than I am in any given situation, and I fully intend to cling to this outlook until I am in my 90s, like Sarah. Perhaps then I will begin to think of myself as geriatric. Now, mind you, I'm very aware of the benefits of age. But the first time my doctor called me middle-aged, I felt a bit huffy about it. Age waits for no one, to be sure. But that doesn't always mean that we're ready for what it brings. With all this said, I do believe that we can fairly 
describe a pregnancy commencing in one's 90s as geriatric. Given I've never birthed any babies, I'm a little reticent to indulge in too much birth-related humor, but I've never forgotten a Bible study I was in many years ago. One of the matriarchs of the church in which I grew up was teaching on the book of Genesis, and when we came to this passage, she said, now, that was not a humorous laugh that came out of Sarah in that moment. She said, that was a panic laugh. So I got to thinking, what about this story exactly is funny? I mean, we all know the principles of humor, don't we? What makes something amusing? What makes us laugh? One of my favorite BBC programs is The Vicar of Dibley, and every episode ends with the rather bawdy vicar, Geraldine Granger, and her air-headed verger, Alice Tinker, sharing a joke after the conclusion of the Sunday service. Every week, the vicar tells a joke. Every week, she has to explain it to Alice and hilarity ensues. And I hate it when I don't get the joke. Don't you? So tell me, what exactly is it about this story that's supposed to be funny? I mean, is it, is it because she's old? I'm not sure that's good humor. Is it because she's eavesdropping? Now, while I realize there is little more tasteless than listening to a conversation that isn't intended for you, I'm not sure that's good humor either. But nonetheless, Sarah laughs to herself, chuckling with incredulity, now that I am old, now that Abraham is old, now... Really? Now? It's, it's sort of like the blooper roll films and Facebook videos of disastrously bad accidents in which nobody is seriously injured. And they're funny, even though they aren't funny, right? But there's, there's nothing about Sarah's life thus far that is funny. Just at the moment when Sarai, that was her first name, thought that she could settle down to a prosperous retirement in the land of Ur, God called her husband, Abram, that was his first name, to get up, to leave the prosperity of his family, and to strike out into an unknown future. And naturally, as Abraham's wife, she couldn't just take a pass. The only thing that is revealed to Abram and Sarai as God calls them to get up and to, to go out into that uncertain future, is that God will give them land, progeny, and a blessing. And to underscore the significance of this change, God gives each of them a new name. And Sarai becomes Sarah, and Abram becomes Abraham. Now, apparently, as they went on this journey, we find out that Sarah was something of a looker because as they make their way to the land that God promised to sh promises to show them, every time they would get into a fix, Abraham would try to pass Sarah off as his sister. Uh, that, by the way, is how she wound up being sold into an Egyptian harem. Now, the first time Abraham did this, it was in poor taste, but the second time he did it, I would imagine she might start to harbor a grudge over it. We really don't know what happened in the harem, because a harem is sort of like Vegas. What happens there stays there. You know, some folks say that that's where she picked up her maid, Hagar, in the harem. Now, I haven't seen the the Hulu remake of The Handmaid's Tale, but I remember reading Margaret Atwood's novel years ago, and that is exactly what Abraham and Sarah did to Hagar. 
They were unable to trust that God would make the covenant come out right. They got involved in God's business and started meddling to force a birth. And it did not go well. It is, well, it's a sordid mess, to be truthful. And Hagar deserves her own moment, her own sermon. But let's just say that Abraham and Sarah used her. And then they treated her shamefully afterward. No, there, there really is nothing that is humorous about Sarah's life. The only good humor in this story is the good humor that it takes to make something work, to pursue a goal because it's what's most important to someone you love, or, or at least to someone to whom you are inextricably bound. The Bible tells us a lot about Abraham's faith, but it tells us very little about Sarah's faith. Abraham's faith is tested, faith is tested on the mountaintop with Isaac, and it's reckoned to him as righteousness, both in the book of Genesis and later in the New Testament in the book of Romans. But what about Sarah's faith? What about fed her spirit? What about what she wanted? It takes backbone to be Sarah. It takes some serious moxie to be Sarah. Because while we may not know the particulars of her life, we know a little bit about the world in which she lived. We know that childbirth was not just a source of potential joy for a family, it was a source of security for a woman. Now, in the story as it unfolds in the book of Genesis, we learn that until the birth of Ishmael, that's Hagar's son, and then later Isaac, who is Sarah's son, the heir to Abraham's fortune is a man named Eleazar of Damascus. We think he was Abraham's cousin. Now, did you catch everything that implies in that moment? The heir to Abraham's fortune was not his wife, but was his cousin. Without a son, she had no security for her old age. We know that much about her situation. Because the way it worked is for any couple, as they faced old age, there was an assumption that their oldest son and his wife would take over the, the family business, whatever it was, whether it was a farm or anything else. And with the, with the privilege of taking over that business, they would then assume responsibility for their aging parents. Simple enough. Now, as long as Abraham was alive, even if, even if he got beyond the point where he could manage his own affairs, a, a trusted slave or servant could manage them for him. But for Sarah, without Abraham, if she had no son, she had no future. So what about what Sarah wanted? I'm not sure anybody really much cared. Or uh, maybe they did care, but they didn't care enough actually to change anything. That's the worst kind of caring, isn't it? Because it means that someone knows that something is not right but they won't actually do anything about it. So when Sarah laughs, there is a whole world wrapped up in her laughter. Is she laughing at an unfulfilled promise? Perhaps. Sometimes it takes an unbearably long time for the promises of God to manifest. Is she laughing at the prospect of her hundred-year-old husband as a father? Perhaps. Is she laughing at the ridiculousness of thinking that this whole mess actually could work out? I would be. 
And yet Walter Brueggemann reminds us that the activity of God is not dependent on Sarah and Abraham's sense of humor when he writes, The resolve of God to open a future by a new heir does not depend on the readiness of Abraham or Sarah to accept it. God keeps God's own counsel and will work God's own will. It will happen, if not in the context of ready faith, which is here denied, than in the context of fearful, resistant laughter. The narrative ends, and Abraham and Sarah are still in doubt. Nor is this the last time that the promises of God will be met with skeptical laughter and incredulity. In the New Testament, the same question is asked when the octogenarian Elizabeth faces her own geriatric pregnancy. In this instance, it is not she, but her husband, who is in turn struck mute by his own unbelief. And Brueggemann adds, the question does not linger with babies and birth narratives. It moves to the impossibility of discipleship. Ultimately, Brueggemann concludes that the doubts and laughter of Abraham and Sarah are answered by this one who faced fully that God is free to be God. Jesus calls his followers to embrace that radical faith with him. Nothing will be impossible to you. So, what is a story like this one that really isn't all that funny, if we're honest about it, mean to you and me on a warm summer's day as we meet to praise the Lord? It means this one true thing, that the God of the covenant, the God in whose name we baptize and are baptized, the God who promises always to meet us at Christ's table, the very God who raised Jesus from the dead, that God always keeps promises. It's that simple. Everything is not promised by God. But every promise God makes is kept. Now, I, I don't know with certainty which promises matter the most to you. I can hazard a guess, I bet pretty accurately, as to which promises are the most important ones. Or maybe I'm just guessing which ones are the most important to me. I am the resurrection and the life. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. No, I don't know person by person which promises are the most important to you. And, and honestly, what's most important today may not be what's most important to you tomorrow. But I do know this. You're here. It's a summer Sunday morning, and something in you caused you to make your way here, to sing hymns and confess your sin and to pray to God for healing for yourself and for the others and dare we even say for the whole world. Or it's possible you, maybe you just came here to give thanks. That alone would be reason enough to come to make note of everything God has done for us and to attempt to give a portion back. The reality is that you and I, every single one of us, this whole creation, 
are floating in a sea of God's grace and kindness and generosity that is greater than any poetic imagery we might ever sing could capture. And that indeed, no matter what, God's providence in our lives goes on and on and on forever and ever until that day when we finally are no longer like a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. And even still, I do understand that despite the durability of God's promises, there are seasons when it appears outwardly that God hasn't yet kept those promises. But remember, that perception is based only on what we can see. I love an old quotation from Frederick Buechner describing the moment he came to faith. He writes of returning to a church in New York over and over again, uh, resistant to the message and yet nonetheless engrossed by the preaching of a famous preacher, George Buttrick. There came one particular sermon with one particular phrase in it that does not even appear in a transcript of his words that someone sent me more than 25 years later. So I can only assume that he must have dreamed it up at the last minute and ad-libbed it. And on such foolish, tenuous, holy threads as that, I suppose, hang the destinies of us all. Jesus Christ refused the crown that Satan offered him in the wilderness, Buttrick said. But he is king nonetheless because again and again he is crowned in the heart of the people who believe in him. And that inward coronation takes place, Buttrick said, among confession and tears and great laughter. It was the phrase, great laughter, that did it. Did whatever it was that I believe must have been hiddenly in the doing all the years of my journey up till then. It was not so much that a door opened as I suddenly found that a door had been open all along, which I had only just then stumbled upon. So really, all I have left to say is that when you hear the promises of God, if you should find yourself overcome with laughter, open up and let the Spirit of God come in until that day when you see the promises for yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.
As we have joined our voices together to sing God's praise, let us also join our voices together to repeat what the church believes. Let's join together in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. In our worship, we commemorate that God gifted God's own self to us in Jesus Christ. Let us now make our gifts to God in that spirit. The morning's offering will now be received.
These are the words of the psalmist, high is the Lord above all nations, God's glory is above the heavens. There is none like the Lord our God in heaven or on earth. He lifts the weak out of the dust, raises the poor from the trash heap, and gives them a place among princes. Worship the Lord. Let us pray. High and great you are, O Lord our God. Yet not so high as to be a prisoner of your glory. Rather, you are so great that you can leave behind your greatness for our sake and descend to us in our smallness, draw near to us in our weakness, and become one with us in our need in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and we thank you for your every kindness, your every promise, and your love. Spirit of the living God, the one who gives new life to all who are fallen, revive in us this day the great bond of compassion which can tie us to you and even more near to each other, and to hear us as we struggle to pray for all of your children. We pray for the health and the well-being of all. We remember before you the sick. Lord, teach us how to draw near. We remember the dying. Show us how to help. We remember those who risk their health or well-being for our sakes. Give us their courage. We pray for the prosperity and the security of all. We remember the jobless and the underemployed. We remember those victimized by domestic abuse or by neglect. We remember those traumatized by crime or the abuse of power. We remember all who risk their prosperity and security for our sakes. We remember all those who labor in government, in business, in charity, in advocacy, all who work for the prosperity and security of our people. We pray for the freedom and liberty of all. We remember the oppressed and the ward upon. We remember all victims of racism, bigotry, ideology, or religious intolerance. We remember all those who risk their personal freedom in order to speak out and defend the rights of us all. And we pray for the world. We remember all who suffer and starve due to the increasing militarism of the world. We remember all who suffer because of our unwillingness to risk the labor of making peace. We remember all those who risk their personal safety and comfort for peace and justice in the world. God of compassion, you have already taken up our very humanity in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, now take up our prayers for his sake. Purge them of what is unworthy. Weigh them in your wisdom. And grant us and our wills a place in your providential will, as it is your wisdom and pleasure to do. And grant us the faith, hope, and love we need each day to hear your word, 
and to do your compassionate will in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That really is what the promises are all about. Uh, even when we're laughing, maybe especially when we're laughing. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Mm -hmm.